Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome to A More Perfect Union. I'm Chris Wolf, and this week it's part two of our wide-ranging discussion about the UK and the uh, changes that are taking place there. And joining me this week, our roundtable of radio regulars, higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalia Alinas, from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, our station manager, Peter Jay, and my co-host, Nick Remesong. And so let's jump into what will clearly be a free-ranging discussion. Yeah, I think we should just bring it back to the to the UK because, as we said, there's a new government, but a lot of the issues that you highlighted that are issues here are issues there and elsewhere in the world as well. Uh, in particular, there's been a, a growing, uh, accelerating uh, economic inequality in the United Kingdom for about the last 15 years since the great crash of 2007 when the Conservative-led government embarked on a austerity program that pretty much cut social programs uh, at the expense of trying to keep a balanced budget. And again, now uh, with um, other issues uh, over there in the economy, in particular, the energy crisis that uh, has been generated by the war in Ukraine and the cutoff of um, much of the energy supplies that used to come from Russia. Uh, and the problems that uh, we have here with inflation as well, it's really hitting hard the um, the majority of the population. So, so but all those people are suffering increasing expenses and the government is out of ideas on how to help. And I know, Pete, you had some thoughts on comparing and contrasting the commonality of problems around the world and the, the variety of solutions. Well, part of it is... Worldwide, we've all suffered from the pandemic two years, and the after effects of that continue. And And so I think my observation is that here we went through, in the beginning of the pandemic, a conservative government under the Trump administration, and then we shifted over to a, a far, certainly a far more liberal, call it centrist to liberal, uh, government under Biden. Whereas in England, uh, there we've had Boris Johnson and what appears to be a pretty solid continuance of a conservative posture uh, in England. So be they conservative, be they liberal, whatever, I, I think in a more universal way, one of the difficulties for all of these governments, for all of these uh, regimes is the fact that the problem is universal. The problem is not easily solvable in the short term by this or that administration. Uh, and the opposition to the administration, be it liberal or conservative, in either case, tends to try to lay blame at the feet of the current administration while they're doing all they can to address the issue with whatever viewpoints they have. 
and yet the pernicious nature of things like supply line problems and unwillingness of the populace to avail themselves of things like vaccines and protection and masking and so on these are all you know larger social issues and and larger logistical issues that we've been left with following the pandemic and and of course the supply line issues and so on have exacerbated availability of stuff and thus we are experiencing significant inflation everywhere so uh, my underscore here is that this isn't just a united states problem this is a worldwide a global problem and that i'm sort of amused by seeing different governments take their various approaches to try to address it ultimately almost to no avail and it's something that invariably will eventually fix itself we had an extremely efficient supply line and delivery system for everything but it was brittle and it was fragile now it's broken and people now realize that they need far more robust means to be able to deliver the goods and services that we're all accustomed to that comes at a cost and so each government has to figure out how it is that they encourage companies to do the right thing to be more resilient and at the same time keep prices down from what i see at this point prices are not going to go down mm -hmm. uh, i was talking with my own financial advisor yesterday and i made the observation that suddenly inflation popped up in the spring and as people began to get out into the world and and start to move on pent-up demand so pent-up demand shot up like crazy you know four or five months ago hence that pent-up demand with a supply side not prepared to meet it well you get inflation supply demand kicked in you get inflation part of the problem with inflation reporting is that it's based on year on year so we're looking at an inflation statistic buried somewhere in the middle of the pandemic and an inflation statistic that is exiting the pandemic you're going to get two very different results and those results are going to continue until we get to year on year point come next may or june where we're now aligned to have a similar backdrop that will give us what the true inflation factor actually really looks like and at that time prices may remain high forever where they are now at a new plateau but the actual inflation statistic will become more accurate and to sum all that up i love the will rogers quote if you lined up every economist end to end around the world they wouldn't reach a conclusion mm -hmm. <laughs> and and let me also add to that too that one of the other factors that we're we're sometimes uh, because most of us don't consider ourselves to be at the same level as economists therefore we just take their word for it but when you look at some of the <laughs> there are many words for it <laughs> <laughs> yeah when you look at you know inflation as it's existing now some of it if not and i'm not going to try to even play an economist uh, but much of it looks as though it's artificial to me and here's why for example let's take a look at cars and the increase in the price of cars now with respect to used cars it's similar to real estate whatever you want to pay for it will accept it and what we're asking for however is always going to be much more than what if you look at just the materials involved in the car 
much more than what it's worth. So uh, there, buyer beware. For new cars, the manufacturing of the cars, maybe the cost has gone up a little bit, but the cost of labor hasn't gone up that much. Auto industry has not uh, increased the salaries uh, and income of their workers by any substantial amount. There are some supply chain issues, but that again has not increased the cost of making the car by that much. However, the regional dealers have colluded with one another to say, oh, we can now take the manufacturer's suggested retail price and let's start to say that people have to pay more than that in order to get a new car. And if the consumer is willing to pay that, that's an artificial contrivance. And the consumer just sits back and says, okay, well, if that's the price of the car, then that's what I've got to pay. When it comes to some of the food stuff, the farmer, for example, has not necessarily increased his or her cost. I mean, their uh, their prices, even though their costs have gone up, but it's the middle people and it's the, and it's the supermarkets. What do you say, guys? when there is this feeling on the part of the consumer that I'm being taken advantage of, that inflation here is really not a function of supply and demand. It's a function of those who have wanting to get more. Mm -hmm. I think there is a prevailing overlayer of what I'll call me tooism. Mm -hmm. In other words, if the, all of society thinks that inflation is rampant, out of control, call it what you will. If the folks down the street are charging more, perhaps almost you seriously, I guess I can do the same thing. Why not? So yes, if you have something exactly. to sell, Why you're going to get, you're going to get, you're going to get what you can for it. And, you know, there's, there's an old saw in retail, because uh, I've done my own share of retail work years ago. Um, the customer sets the price. What does that mean? Is that you put something out there on offer and the customer either negotiates or votes with their feet and goes somewhere else. Customers at this point have been either accepting the condition for the necessaries, but I think that they've probably dialed back on the optionals. I, for instance, have two cars and, you know, am I going to buy a new one now or later? I've chosen to wait um, because what I have is in good shape. So I, raising interest rates is an interesting notion. Yeah, it does tend to slow things down. But I think that this particular form of inflation has earmarks that even, you know, I don't fully understand, try though I may, uh, th that I think make it unique. And as things get ironed out over the next year, I think the return to normalcy will probably be, you know, somewhere in late spring. I, I think also it's, I mean, th this might be going just a bit far afield, but since I go I've retired, far afield, why not? We've I, been I, doing. I've retired. Those... I got time. Nothing but far afield. We've, like we've in... been far afield for the entire show. Let's not break. <laughs> let's not break our stride. I think any any society that makes heroes out of out of celebrity chefs, um, out of out of businessmen. I mean, Kardashian, certainly... let's throw the Kardashians in. There. Yes, they yes, got to be all they're, they're on top. And then so the Osbournes and yeah. any other Hollywood family you want. <laughs> but any any society that makes celebrities. Hey, people talking who... about royalty again, huh? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but we, we've made celebrities out of these people and we we're beginning to equate celebrity with knowledge and with business acumen and the the deification of businessmen, which I think 
ultimately resulted in the previous administration is something that we need to that goes back again. It all ties in as far as I'm concerned. It's all a conspiracy. Uh, it all ties into the state of education, not just in this country, Christopher, but uh, just about everywhere that has fallen off. I think we need to, again, we need to reassess education much more sharply, uh, much more stringently. We need to really look at it and see where we want to go and how we can get there. And I would hope that we want to go to the point where we no longer feel that it's okay for Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk to play play their games on an international global scale where they can send up rockets, you know, and they can lose a couple of multi-billion dollar rockets and it doesn't impact upon them. It's no big deal. It's just a shift in their credit lines. There have, has to be, I'm not saying we should deify anyone. There's only one deity, um, nor should we create heroes. When we create heroes, we kind of put expectations out there that are unrealistic. Well, what you're talking about, obviously, Nick, is that celebrity is a poor substitute for substance. Yes. Oh, yes. Form, That's really where versus, we are. Yeah. And and people very willingly, unfortunately, because of the media engine we have in this country, mm -hmm. they 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 very unwittingly trade one for the other, which is why you get the last administration. Mm -hmm. um, and that gets back to the Jeffersonian principle that I harp on so often. You know, an educated populace is the best defense for democracy. Right. It's also a great weapon against evil, I think. Well, that brings us back to the monarchy, right? Uh, yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that gets there's to, a lack of education. You know, well, there you go. The monarchy enjoys certainly a classic form of celebrity. Yes. Uh, and, and, you know, if you want to ask people why, they go well because they're famous. Well, it, it, and and not only are they are, are they famous in the sense of the here and now, but they're famous because we have tracked their family history for generations, for centuries, and that in and of itself makes them famous. Well, you know, and and similarly, we are on the same or similar path here in the United States. Uh, when one speaks of, for example, the Bushes, the Kennedys, Bingo. the we forget about the Eisenhowers, the Truman. These are, these are these are dynasties. Yeah, and and it gets to a point where, and I think you're right, Nick, with regard to education, we are we are in a real quandary here because, as a former teacher myself, I am. I am absolutely not only of the opinion, but of the experience that those who are in charge of education in many instances have no clue what it takes to keep a population mm. uh, educated. Mm. Neither do they understand the curricular needs. Neither do they understand the cognitive sort of uh, fulfilling of keeping a population aware of what's going on around them uh, to a point where there are those who take advantage of the lack of knowledge, for example, of our citizens about how this republic works, or those who are not interested in politics. And we play into the idea that it's okay for them not to pay attention to politics, because that way they won't scrutinize my work as a congressman or as a state legislative member uh, or as a senator. And yet that's where we're going. We're at a point where it is really tough for us to understand how 
you know, we could have a Trump for those of us who pay attention until you look at the population who really only deals with the here and now and listen to the words of a politician as though he or she speaks truth without any factual basis behind it. I would I would I would offer the this as a as a curative. Uh, one of the great uh, courses that take place in universities, of course, is LNR, logic and rhetoric. I would take that particular course and I would shove it right down to the beginning of high school, freshman, sophomore year, before mm-hmm. kids have a chance to drop out. I would get them to have an initial exposure to some critical thinking um, and to have a lively debate down at that early age of adolescence. So that way, the maximum number of people in the world are exposed to the fact that gaslighting exists, there are carnies and hucksters at every corner, and that they need to pay attention to what kind of word salad they're being served. I, I would even push that down. Uh, elementary. To, exactly. Mm-hmm. Elementary school. And, and for sure, in the middle school, it is important for us to build that relationship between cognitive dissonance and cognitive reasoning mm-hmm. uh, and for our people to understand the difference. Uh, you know, when you have, uh, uh, I almost called him an idiot, but I won't do that. Uh, a key governor uh, of a particular Southern state that happens to wrap around the Atlantic Ocean and the Gulf of Mexico. Oh, go Sunday. on. You can call him an idiot. I'm, I'm, good with, I'm fine with that. I take no, I take no offense. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, and I wonder. But he is a Harvard-educated idiot. Yes, he is, and and I wonder what would have happened if, when the two planes landed today in Martha's Vineyard, uh, what would happen if they had landed in London? What would Charles have said, or what would the uh, uh, the new prime minister have said? Uh, you know about one of their Commonwealth governors sending in people uh, as a means of a political stunt. And, you know, our people ought to be outraged. But yet, I'll bet you if you walked into downtown Franklin, if you go to the mall and you ask people, what was, you know, what were those two planes that landed in Martha's Vineyard about this morning? Uh, They wouldn't even know what you were talking about. Mm -hmm. Doubtlessly. Doubtlessly. Yeah. Yeah. And getting back to the critical thinking, I mean, I was very fortunate in that my entire thrust of my education, something I latched onto rather quickly in uh, in junior high, was reading, critical reading, uh, reading, uh, understanding why what I was reading was good, bad, and different, understanding why it was uh, well written, badly written, and why it got the point across or did not. And that's critical thinking. And that's part of rhetoric. And but a lot of the guys I came up with, and they were majority of men uh, who came into college with me, had no idea, let alone, they had to look up the word rhetoric. They didn't know what that meant when they got to college, and it was used the first time in a class, generally by a, uh, an instructor or professor who was 70 years plus, because they were the only ones who really dealt with that on a daily basis. And for me, reading is learning how to think, and then what you do with how you think that's the rhetoric and that's the critical uh, criticism. And I'm going to always, you, you talk to me, I'm always going to push for a greater emphasis on that sort of thing in education. The STEM is tremendous. I think it's, it's fine. 
but and it's been sadly neglected but we can't put the emphasis on that and then neglect anything else but so that's that that i, I agree with uh, the the rhetoric has to be and critical thinking has to be reassessed the teaching of how we teach in this country and i think you're right uh, dr jones dr walker jones uh most of the people who were in the higher level of education these days who are determining the structure of education on the very basic level, edu elementary education, children coming up, they're either careerists or they're political appointees to a great extent. Not maybe they've gotten the job, but they've gotten the job because they knew someone who knew someone. Well, I yeah, think I want to echo I, that. I to, I'm just going to jump in because that's the one thing that um, really gets my goat, as they say in the old country. I don't know if you get that saying here, but the, 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 the lack of vision like there used to be that uh, a party would have a coherent vision of where they wanted society to be going and you know they we, you'd have four years of one eight years of the next and uh, the country would move in uh roughly towards the goals that would kind of converge because of the alternating steps but i couldn't really tell you what the coherent vision is of the major parties especially on the right, both here and in, in the United Kingdom. Uh, they want to be prosperous and productive, but it seems more to my superficial viewing, uh, since I'm kind of detached from the political realities now, that, that a lot of persons involved in politics at this point are just in it for themselves. They want power for its own sake, and they want the rewards that come with um, the obscene rewards that can come from uh for example, in Europe, privatizing publicly owned assets, uh, such as the healthcare system, which is one of the things that's being discussed now in the UK. But it's all about the next step they can get to remain in power and make some money. And like, where's the vision for the country? I, you know, it's a struggle for me to, well, to part pin of down it, sometimes. Part of it is that their advisors and they as well, certainly because they, they, you know, it's their face on the can. So they're responsible, but it really comes down to the substitution of real policy and removal of real policy in exchange for dog whistle issues, because right. dog whistle issues generate pathos, which generates passion, which generates votes. Right. And if it generates votes, you know, the most valuable and most reliable vote is the angry vote. Right. And my final throwback then to the UK at this point would be uh, the issue that has completely bisected and transformed UK politics is the exit from the European Union, yes. because a lot of white working class people who traditionally voted for the uh, British equivalent of the Democratic Party, the Labour Party, um, because they were protecting workers' rights and such, mm -hmm. switched uh, to conservatives in the last couple of elections because they were uh, more closely identified with bringing the UK out of the European Union. And in a it's it's transformed the the politics there because right now labor can't fight back uh against the conservative uh, point of view because it would be you know they could be seen as being pro-european or whatever again and um there's there's that, part that of where whistle the issue which you know at right. its root um, that's where the muddling of things continues because now both parties appear to have a latch on what i'll call populist issues mm-hmm and so populist issues being on both sides of the equation give both parties the opportunity to generate the angry votes they need. Less so here in the U.S. with Democrats. But uh, at the end of the day, this is this is the war that's going on in the media. And 
it tends to muddle the clarity between what's the difference between the parties, be the liberal or conservative. Uh, and you find that on one issue, they're, the conservatives lead on another issue, again, populist issues, uh, the liberals lead. Um, and so um, it's it's really become something of a full contact game uh, where the crafting of the language and and the tonnage put behind the language in terms of media exposure seems to be the rule of the day. Exactly. Well, so, if you look at just the last few days in the United States, um, I think the vision comes through quite clearly. While all the Democrats uh, in the United States and throughout uh, the United States were gathered on the White House lawn, and I will say I was one of them on that White House lawn, we were celebrating the signing of the Inflation Reduction Act, which is going to create millions of jobs. It's going, it's the most aggressive climate change legislation that we have passed. Uh, and it's the first piece of uh, climate change legislation on a national level that we've had uh, substantively in 40 years. Uh, and it, it's a, a really incredible piece of legislation. While we were celebrating that at the White House, over in, uh, in, uh, in Congress, the senator was introducing uh, a further national ban on abortion and uh, has said that if the Republicans take power uh, after the midterms, there will be an abortion ban uh, bill passed in the United States Congress. And to me, that articulated clearly what the vision of the two national parties uh, in the United States was standing for. And I found that incredibly compelling in a real, uh, a real way to focus uh, on the upcoming elections that are coming here in the United States in November. No, I agree. There's the, there are, that is probably tops the agenda. Uh, and there are several others that, you know, you, you'd look at them and say, how can anything top this until you look at the next one below it and you say, well, how could anyone top that as being number one on the agenda? There's things that need to be considered and too many people go to the polls and they, I don't know if it's a hunt and peck or it's a, a blind dive down on with a pencil onto the, the ballot, but that's how they vote. They're not informed. And, and in fact, my wife kind of brought up a point. We don't see the National League of Women's Voting Guide any longer. That used to be something that came in the mail before every primary season. And you would have a great structure, which, which party the, the candidate was affiliated with, a three or four paragraph statement of their position. And basically, you know, you, you could make it, you could start to make your, your research into that candidate from there. And it was a good basis in particular when with questions, they would tell you exactly what the question was, how it was structured, what a yes vote meant and what a no vote meant. And you could go from there. You could research it further or not, but you had something that gave you a basis. We don't have a basis in this country because not just because we're no longer receiving the National League Women's uh, Voting Guide, but because we just don't have a, a regard for the need to understand the politics of this country and how they impact locally and globally. 90% of the votes are cast from the heart, not the mm -hmm. brain. 
Mm-hmm. So that's the issue. I, I want to return to the notion we mentioned earlier about the, the trust administration and the fact that the trust administration, uh, the cabinet uh, by selection, really doesn't seem to have any vision going forward, has been a recent observation made. So uh, right now, they perhaps are looking like an empty vessel that people can pour their expectations into, whatever they may be. <laughs> but uh, at this juncture, given the immediacy and urgency of where we are economically post-COVID, they're going to have to rally to try to do something in order to endure. Yes. So it's interesting that the the, the two strands that have come out from trust so far. One is a promise that um, people won't be ruined by the uh, energy bills that would be. Um, and, and to give you a sense, people are talking about a potential tenfold increase in your energy bill so that individual households Yikes. could be you're right paying. Um, we were worried about um, the national grid throwing things up by now 40 percent in a year. But, uh, you know, a, a, an exponential almost increase in, in energy costs over the coming months. So that she's been talking about a price freezes, which is a very uh, illiberal uh, answer to to that kind of thing, and very non. The conservatives historically are seen as the pro business party, so right. that level of intervention, yeah, would be um, very unreaganite uh, in that sense of yes. um, inter- market intervention. Um, and the other issue that um, so the energy uh, crisis there, the the other main uh, component that has been talked about with the trust administration is that there's a general kind of pressure that they feel on themselves to deliver massive increases in productivity, which was one of the promises of Brexit, that free of European regulations, the Britain could become much more uh, competitive in the international market. And um, almost nothing has been done in that regard, except there's now talk of pretty much eroding all the labor protections that the European Union had uh, directed, uh, governing the maximum number of hours that people could work per week involuntarily. So like an employer could force you to work a little, a certain amount of overtime. I think it's 48 hours a week and no more if you didn't want to. Um, and so they're thinking of all these kinds of, um, potential measures to, to bring in. And then of course, down the road, potentially privatizing what remaining government assets there are, such as the national health service. So, um, all these things, could are being bandied around, but we, as you say, it's an empty vessel at the moment because uh, just filled with hopes and expectations. I think nationalizing, I think privatizing the National Health Service would probably be a, a big step backwards because then you would be giving organizations free reign to be able to do a lot of what's going on in the United States where various mm-hmm. subsectors in the health service start raising and justifying their increases. And then that creates this spiraling uh, situation. Because I mean, here in the US, what our our health costs, in some cases are double what they are elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Easily. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's expense, as we know, all goes to the administration uh, of the healthcare uh, business, uh, not to Mm -hmm. actual healthcare. Um, Yeah. So on on healthcare with the UK, I always remind people about my own great grand died around 1927, um, had um, uh, major lung issues. And um, back in those days, surgeons would come and operate in your own home if you couldn't afford a hospital fee. And if you couldn't afford the full anesthetic, as my own great-grandfather could, uh, you'd get a more limited. So he had a local anesthetic, um, 
but uh, they couldn't afford the more expensive one, but they could afford the um, organ grinder with his monkey to play mm. outside the house to drown out the screams. Mm. So that's the life in the healthcare in the good old days without... Uh, <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. National uh, protection of some sort. What was the monkey masked? <laughs> well, the, we don't have photographs. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Just, uh, just my great aunt telling the story. Yeah. Uh, one thing, I, getting, I mean, getting right back to it with a new cabinet. I have a schematic uh, in front of me now that contrasts the Johnson cabinet against the new trust cabinet, and it looks like, as I mentioned before we went on air, it looks like something of a microorganism that just seems to have tentacles leading back and forth and everywhere. It shows who's the new role, the same role, and new in cabinet. And you have got some fascinating cabinet positions here that just, uh, I wonder if you could kind of give us a scorecard on who sure. and what is going on here. What, for instance, why is there a cabinet member for business, one for trade, and one for work? How, how do we divide that? Where does that come from? And leveling up. What in the world is that? Oh, well, we'll start with the leveling. Le leveling uh, was a movement in the 1600s during the English Civil War oh. uh, amidst all the chaos of the... Um, the levelers, sure. They, they just wanted to um, level up, uh, as it were, so that uh, or level society upwards and downwards to, to create a, a, just one middle class. And so that's constantly been in the political background. I have to confess, I did not know that there's now a ministry of leveling up, if that's mm -hmm. what's been and, described. And your, your cabinet member, your leader of that is Simon Clark, who moved up to the leveling up position in the trust cabinet from his position in the Johnson cabinet of Treasury. So just so all those positions have a government ministry behind it. Mm -hmm. uh, so obviously, like the, the um, trade speaks for itself. Those are the people uh, supervising trade regular uh, international trade mm. um business is something that's looking at business regulations um within the country mm. and regulating businesses but the um and then the key uh position for financial um considerations is the and probably the one who has the most sway is a the charming title of chancellor of the exchequer mm -hmm. uh, which goes back a long long uh way it's one of the key positions in the inner cabinet Quasi Quartang. Um, yes, uh, who I believe is the MP for my old uh, constituency um, back in the UK. Al, I've never had the chance to meet him. And um, uh, he's pretty much the one that sets the government budget uh, and defends it in Parliament, uh, which is um, not just uh, what uh, taxes are going to be and where government's spent, but also um, it, there's all kinds of buttons you can push uh, in the setting of the budget that will have all those influences on um, the incentives you can give to um, taxes and businesses uh, and, and so on. So, yes, it's quite a quite a sprawl of, um, well, again, some of those titles are creating that illusion of continuity that we talked about <laughs> earlier with um, with the past. And, 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 and you're right. I mean, the in particular in the first the first ranks in the, the cabinet, the high the higher positions, there is a an absolute dearth of white males. Well, that's the, partly a. Mm -hmm. policy choice that the Conservative mm -hmm. Party made about yeah. 15 years ago, that all new uh, parliamentary candidates should be women or have a diverse 
um, ethnic heritage. Mm -hmm. So though all those people who are like fr political freshmen uh, 15 years ago are now at that point of their mm -hmm. maturity in their political lives where they can take the front seat. And it is, um, I I'm going to get in trouble for this, for saying it's partly show because the Conservative Party is notoriously run by the what they call the grandees like mm -hmm. rich, mm -hmm. rich a club of rich white men <laughs> so who wanted a more credible looking uh front end of the political organization so yeah what, what um, we refer to in this country is the two namers anthony eaton hogg and uh, chris <laughs> eaton harris that's oh, all go get me started on on resmog uh <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes well, it's interesting because you know, trust probably falls in the same bucket of of recent MPs, you know, having come in at uh, what twelve years ago in twenty ten. But when you look at her CV in that time, she's actually had several different positions in the various cabinets of the past PMs. Right, uh, and so it's interesting to see how politicians sort of move around like furniture. Yep, <laughs> and. Uh, I encourage anyone who's never seen it to rent uh, or watch, if they can, the um, British comedy shows from the uh, 80s and 90s. Yes, Minister and Yes, yes Prime Minister. Prime Minister, yes. To yes. get a fabulous insight into how uh, yes, British politics work. As a sideline, I actually sold both of those books in this country <laughs> to our Wonderful. publishing house. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Yes. So, wow. uh, yeah. Uh, anyway. So before we go, ladies and gentlemen, any last thoughts on uh, the changing world order and the uh, end of an era and the start of the uh, the new Carolinian order? Ah, the Carolinian. I, well, I'm noticing also in uh, Truss's CV that she really began on what was basically the Democratic or the Labour side. And somewhere around 2015, 2016, there was some kind of a shift over to the Conservative Party which somewhat intrigues me because you see that so rarely here in the US. You're either one or the other. And I guess it also reflects back on where do you need to be standing to think that you have an opportunity either to advance your cause or to solve a problem. Yeah, and that that brings me back to Churchill. I mean, I can I you know reading about when he crossed the uh the floor of parliament to join the uh the Labour Party, left the Tories, which is a, traditionally the conservative party has been known as, and made that switch back and forth a couple of times. Well, one of his great quotes was, you know, if if you are not a liberal when you're 25, mm -hmm. you have no, if, if you're a liberal when you're 25, you have no head. When you're If you're a conservative, you know, when you get 50, you have no heart. I'm probably mm -hmm. destroying the quote, but it was, it was, it was a fascinating <laughs> read. Brutal. Yes. Anyway, another more perfect hour has flown by, and we have to say goodbye until next week. If you would like to weigh in on our discussions, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can email us at uh, info at franklin.tv. That's I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. If you enjoyed our discussion, please let us know. If you disagree, all the more reason to let us know. You can also share or listen to this program or any of our past episodes anytime. Our podcasts are available online. Just visit our website, wfpr.fm. For Dr. Natalia Linos, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, our representative on Beacon Hill, Jeff Roy, along with Peter Jay and my co-host, Nick Ramasong, I'm Chris Wolf. Thanks for listening and joining our shared journey toward a more perfect union. This is 
Franklin Public Radio.